Good afternoon, everyone, um, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm Robert Buckingham, Creative Director of M Pavilion, and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, um, I would like to welcome you to this very special architectural event, an intimate in-conversation with Penelope Seidler. Um, as is customary at M Pavilion, we acknowledge the Boonarong people, the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, and pay our respects to their elders, ancestors, and the land. We'd also like to thank all of our many cultural and educational partners for their support of M Pavilion's free public program throughout our four-month season. We especially thank the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the ANZ. Today, we are greatly honoured to have Penelope Seidler visit Melbourne as part of our program. Penelope um, is an extraordinary Australian, an architect, an art patron and current director of Sydney-based architectural firm Harry Seidler & Associates. The architectural, firm, the architectural firm started by her husband, the famed leader in Australian modernism and exponent of Bauhaus, Harry Seidler. Today, Penelope will speak to Dr Anne Stephen from the University of Sydney and Professor Philip Goad from the University of Melbourne. Together they will talk about Penelope's life in architecture and some of the experiences she shared with her husband. Um, Penelope is also in Melbourne to support um, the launch of a major new Australian Research Council project called, the ba called Bauhaus Australia, Emigres, Refugees and the Modernist Transformation of Education in Art, Architecture and Design. As many of you know, Harry Seidler was trained by the leaders of the Bauhaus movement and the enormous part he played in bringing the ideals of Bauhaus to Australia are central to this research project. As part of the launch, we've had three, pro three events at M Pavilion, a lecture last night, uh, this talk, and this evening, Isabel, Anne and Philip will join fellow colleagues, Harriet Edquist from RMIT University and Andrew McNamara from Queensland University of Technology in conversation on how Bauhaus emigres influenced Australian art. So please join us again tonight. But today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Penelope Seidler, Anne Stephen and Philip Goad. And after the talk, I think we're going to have a trailer of a recent film about Harry Seidler. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Robert. I'm in fact going to uh, throw directly to Philip because I'm no architectural historian. He is, he is that indeed. So over to you, Philip. Right. Thank, thank you very much, Anne. Uh, look, just a, a few words about our project. We're looking at emigres who came to Australia in the period from around 1935 all the way through to about 1960. And in the middle of that period, one of the key people that arrives in terms of architecture is Harry Seidler. And he comes to Australia with an extraordinary pedigree. He's done his graduate studies at the Harvard Graduate School of Design under the founding director of the Bauhaus, Walter Gropius. He then completes uh, his studies there and Gropius suggests that he goes to Black Mountain College to do further study with another Bauhaus master, uh, Joseph Albers. So I'm going to ask Penelope a first question. Uh, the experience of Harry at Harvard must have been quite extraordinary. How do you think he then uh, uh, worked with that education into his practice? Well, it was pivotal to his whole career, I should say, because um, he had been living in Canada. He still, uh, where he got his undergraduate degree, 
and was working in Toronto and he heard that he could apply to Harvard. He was still stateless, he didn't have any papers at all. And then he got the message that Harvard was taking him and granting him a scholarship and they arranged for his, uh, him to go there without papers. They fixed the whole thing. And he was in awe of, the, of this great opportunity. And I think he drank up every word. And when he was, um, he said that when he first got to Harvard, um, Gropius had the class, which was fairly small, about 20, um, all to the house at Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is now a historic house. And uh, they all had afternoon tea and played table tennis, apparently. And uh, he, he just adored everything and drank up the, uh, the learning. And at the end of it was a year long. Um, he said to Gropius, you know, what else can I do? I want to know more, I want to know more. And Gropius then suggested, well, if you really want some visual experience, you should go and, and to Black Mountain with Joseph Albers. And so he did that. And he said he learnt more about visual um, composition and perception from Albers than he had ever encountered before. He said that was crucial to his knowledge. And of course, he became a devotee of Joseph Albers and Annie Albers, his, uh, Joseph's wife, who was a great um, weaver. So the, the, his practice, the practice of collaboration was what he learned at, with Gropius, that it's more, architecture is more than one um, you know, creative leap. You have to rely on a very other, uh, other disciplines, engineering and um, the, what, what makes sense in, bu in building technology and must always be aware of uh, the appropriateness of the buildings and the function and it, not just form follows function, that's rather mediocre expression, I think. Uh, but um, before we move on from yeah. his study, uh, I was wondering if you could characterise his fellow students because yeah. it was immediately in the post-war period and, of yes. course, uh, Harry was a... German speaker, as was Gropius, mm. so that must have been an important affinity they, that he shared with Albers and Gropius. Well, I'm not sure that he ever spoke German with them. Um, I don't know about that, but in his class there, um, there were two terms. The first term he overlapped with I.M. Pei, of course, who very famous, and there were other, there was Paul Rudolph, Vic Lundy, uh, there were so many who, who um, all went on to have distinguished careers. And when we used to travel, we used to go and visit those people quite often. And so, mm. so he kept up with the Harvard class oh, indeed. Through, through his yes. entire career? Yes, he did, yes. And I think at one point he invited I.M. Pei to collaborate here in yes, Australia. Yes, the beginning of Australia Square... Um, Dusseldorp, who was the client uh, who started um, Civil and Civic, later Lend-Lease, uh, thought that Harry might not be uh, sufficiently mature enough to, <laughs> to do such a large project and he'd 
admired greatly the work of the developer Zeckendorf in New York. And Zeckendorf gave Iron Pay his big break and Pay did a lot of work for him. So we went off to New York in 1960 and spent a week or two working with Iron Pay. But that scheme enveloped the whole block. And in the end, they weren't able to get the whole block. And it became very complicated. Don't forget, in those days, there was no internet, there was no fax, there was nothing. Mm. You, mm. It was rather complex to, um, to work with in a foreign place. So in the end, Dusseldorf um, decided that Harry could do it alone on a smaller block. And that, that's what you see with Australia Square. And Penelope, with, with the experience at Black Mountain College, working with Joseph Albers, Harry uh, kept all of his teaching notes. Oh, uh, he did, yes. And um, there was a bit of... He had the notes, uh, one on colour and one on design. Mm. And um, there was... Uh, they wanted them at Harvard, they wanted them at Yale. But finally, um, I gave them uh, to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, who were very keen to have them. But you can get them all online now. Mm. Right. Mm. And has anyone actually looked at these notes in any detail? Because I think that forms part of our project mm. to actually mm. look at what Harry took from this extraordinary school at Black Mountain in North Carolina, where you had great dancers, great graphic designers, great painters mm. and the like. And Harry's part of that extraordinary post-war story. Well, you've probably had a look at them, haven't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're full of diagrams and um, he was uh, very particular. He kept all the notes all those years when he came to Australia. And I think they're exemplary, actually. And, and, and he, I think uh, when Barry Bergdahl did the exhibition on the bar house yes. at MoMA several years ago. He said that they're in fact very rare to find mm. any yes. surviving student records of Alba's teaching at Black Mountain, that's, despite that's right. the fact that you had such a distinguished cohort of people like Rauschenberg, of John Cage, yeah. Cunningham, most Cunningham, mm. you know, remarkable list of the avant-garde. That's correct, mm. yes. Well, it was Barry Bergdahl who, who put the hard word on me to mm. uh, give them to Museum of Modern Art. But having done that, it's accessible to everybody. Now, the house that Harry did for his parents, uh, most commonly known as the Rose Seidler House, do you think that... My badge. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think uh, Harry brought all of his uh, Harvard learning to that house? Absolutely. I think it's an exemplar of, of that teaching. Um, as you know, he didn't actually want to come to Australia. He was working for yet another Bauhaus uh, master, Marcel Breuer, in New York. He'd been there almost two years. And his parents, um, by a completely different route, had come to settle in Australia. And they expected him to come with his brother, Marcel. His brother came right at the beginning. But Harry had no intention of coming to Australia. Um, it didn't mean anything to him. But finally, when his mother wrote to him and said, uh, we'd like you to come and design a house, well, I think that did it. 
<laughs> a client. <laughs> Clients always win. So he came and I think he had the prototype of the house already in his mind and he set about finding the ideal location for it and he, having worked for Breuer, he was used to um, building houses in vast uh, landscapes and he wasn't particularly interested in a small block on the eastern suburbs near the harbour. So he went right out to Warunga, where curiously enough I lived just around the corner. <laughs> but I didn't know that then. And um, they got, I think, uh, 25 acres for 500 pounds or something, something ridiculous anyway. Mm -hmm. And he built that house and it became a bit of a sensation. And then he built two other houses on that same block, for uh, one for a relative and another for another person. And Penelope, there's a classic photo, I think it mu must be taken in the Rose Seidler house of Gropius uh, with Harry on his visit to Australia. In 1952, um, Gropius came to Australia to attend an architectural convention and I think Harry was the one who wrote to him and he certainly suggested him and um, he came to Australia and there was a big exhibition at the Sydney Town Hall of a prototype prefabricated house which Harry designed. Mm -hmm. And there was huge crowds because it was all publicised in the Women's Weekly at the time and it created a huge amount of interest. And do you think Harry was pleased to have Gropius here in Australia and, and did he... Uh, I think, reflect on what Gropius thought about Australia? Oh, he was very pleased. <laughs> he was thrilled. Um, but he, he always felt that uh, there wasn't enough uh, resonance about it, that it was like a drop in the ocean, that it didn't really affect everything. He thought it would bring the Bauhaus or Gropius's teachings to the world, but I think he was always a bit disappointed that it didn't springboard very much. But maybe it did, you know, now we're all talking about it, maybe it did. Mm. And in fact, it's that history that you've referred to of collaborative projects mm. which incorporate interdisciplinary commissions that uh, are so identified with the Seidler projects. When I think of Australia Square, I think of, first of all, the commissions you and Harry were sent around the world to we develop. And and then what is in the foyer today, if you can... Yes, well, first of all, um, Harry said, no, if we're going to build this very significant building, we should have the best engineering advice possible. And uh, he suggested to Dusseldorp that they collaborate with Pierre-Luigi Nervi and the... The local engineers were a bit cross. We don't need a foreign, we don't need any foreign interjection. But um, Dusseldorp listened to Harry and sent him to Rome, and R Harry was there for about six to eight weeks. That was in late 1963, when they worked together. I was doing my final year exam, so I didn't go on that trip. So I think that created, that resulted in a very worthwhile experience when you look at the engineering of Australia Square. And then later on, 
Well, not much later on, mm. actually. Dusseldorf said, well, we want the finest art. And uh, again, send Harry around the world. And I was lucky enough to go on that trip too. Mm. And to find the great art for the lobby and the plaza. Um, and we went to visit Henry Moore. We went to visit uh, Noguchi, Bartoya, uh, many other people. But the one we ended up with, and we're very happy, who was very enthusiastic about the project, was Alexander Calder. And uh, he wasn't, I mean, he was no, well known then, but not as, as well known as he is now, of course. It was about 1965. And uh, it and was a very good deal. Mm. And while the Calder is still there on George Street, in fact, the Le Corbusier and Vassarelli tapestries that you also yes. commissioned have now been replaced. Yes, well, the other artwork which um, Harry was looking for was something to go around, the, to circle the drum in the lobby. And we met several artists, but he didn't uh, feel that anybody was particularly suitable for that, that, the ones we met, but he rather liked the idea of tapestries because they'd take up the curve. Mm. And um, we were able to get the Corbusier tapestry and Vassarelli, he was less enthusiastic about, but... Uh, mm. <laughs> It, it, everyone else liked No, we did like it. <laughs> but um, I don't know what's happened to that one. But the Vassarelli, the um, Corbusier tapestry is now in the Conservatorium of Music, at, uh, which is part of Sydney University in Sydney. And Penelope, the choice of art, uh, did Harry have particular tastes in art? And what, what did he think of Australian art? Uh... Well, he did have particular tastes. Um, he never thought about whether it was Australian or international. It was just a response to whether he liked it or not. But I think he was a little bit snobby when he came because he was friendly with Ralph Balson and all these um, contemporary artists in Sydney. And he just thought, I know he thought this, is, that he'd come from where it was all happening. And... You know, in those days, there weren't many illustrations of what was going on. There was no TV or anything, and there were art magazines, but often the pictures would be in black and white, and one could read about things, but it was very far away in those days, and he felt that what was happening here was just a sort of echo of, of New York or Europe. So... Um, I used, to, I used to say to him, why didn't you buy all these things but in then? Fact, <laughs> in, in fact, he had, when he was working with Breuer, acquired a few of the early Albers woodcuts. Oh, yes. He, he yeah. came to Australia with, yeah. uh, with an Albers collection, mm. yes, which he'd bought at um, Sydney Janus Gallery in New York for a very modest sum. And, mm. and then, to which you added in the 60s and in fact the famous exhibition that came to Australia two decades of American painting yes from the news from the Museum of Modern Art in New York a landmark exhibition two decades mm. of American painting much of which was for sale here there were some pictures sold there was several Morris Lewis's sold 
which went into Guard Garries, and mm. the four Albers homage to mm. the square, of which we bought one. I know... Um, Art Gallery uh, Art Gallery of New South Wales and... And NGV. And NGV yeah. also bought one. I wish we'd bought more, but I guess we didn't have the money then. And mm. that still sits in your house in Harry's... Oh, yes. It, everything in our house is original. Um, well, when I say original, the house was finished in 1967 and up till about the early 70s, whatever came then, it's all there now. I haven't changed anything. There's no alterations, no additions, all original furniture. Although, Penelope, you can't help yourself. You continue to collect. Well, I collect, but I collect small things and I also have an apartment, so it all <laughs> goes there. No, no, the house is sort of a frozen monument to the 60s. Right. <laughs> uh, but Harry also bought, uh, when he came to Australia, he bought furniture with him he as well. He bought the furniture because he thought, well, I'm not going to be able to buy anything there. So, <laughs> and he bought uh, many, many Eames chairs. I mean, he had them all sent by sea and the original um, sarin and uh, womb chair and... Um, I think a, gra a grasshopper chair? A grasshopper, two grasshopper chairs, a sarin and grasshopper chairs. Uh, yes, he, and several light fittings, um, all these things he mm. bought with him. And I'm going to pull you back to Australia Square because towards the end of his life, you both brought Solar Width into Australia Square because by that stage you had some concern about the tapestries, the Le Corbusier and the Vasarelli yes. in the foyer. They wanted to replace the tapestries. They'd been there for some time then. And um, Solar Wit came to Australia, not at our behest, but for a John Caldor project. And we met him and... The result of that was two commissions, actually. Mm. The one at Australia Square on the drum, which mm. was what we always wanted. Mm. I mean, he wasn't doing that in the 60s, but mm. we just think it's perfect. Mm. And it, for those of you who've been to Sydney and seen the drum of Australia Square, I think it's fabulous, mm. day and night. And the other commission was the Horizon Apartments in Sydney. We took him to the site while it was being built and he designed the wall mural there. That was about 2003, I think. I think yeah. it was earlier, earlier than that. Uh, earlier, earlier, earlier. Yeah. yeah, about yep. 2000. The, the, right. the Australia Square um, artwork, did, it took a few years to realise. Mm -hmm. um, when Harry arrived, uh, he does the house for his parents. Mm. Does he associate with other émigré artists and designers and architects at all? Um, up to a point, I, he belonged to the Contemporary Art Society in Sydney and he was very friendly with uh, some architects in Sydney who gave him very good advice. He was a friend of Sydney Anchor, um, Charles D. Moore, John D. Moore. John D. John D. Moore. Um, Leslie Wilkinson. He, they all befriend um, Le, um, Baldwinson, Arthur Baldwinson, who'd had worked with Gropius in um, in England before mm. Gropius went to America. Um, I think he's associated with them more than the immigrant 
But I'm not sure about that. Uh, he and knew Fombateau, who was a um, French, French architect. Yeah. yeah. And what about furniture? Um, Paul Kafka? Paul Kafka, desi- uh, Harry designed all the furniture, but Kafka um, manufactured it mm-hmm. in the house. Um, but Harry designed all his own furniture. He, mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't leave it to anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> he was very uh, total in what he did. Mm. And I heard you talk about how Harry's mother brought a very strong Viennese culture even to this wild part of Australian, well, Sydney um, bushland. Yeah, well, she took to the garden. She loved gardening. She hadn't really done it before, but she she really adored having her own garden and she grew fruit trees and all that sort of thing. And she was a magnificent Viennese cook. Mm. And um, used to serve uh, afternoon tea. They called it yowza, and uh, made you know beautiful apple strudel and linseed tortas and things like that. And in fact, when Gropius visited the house, he remarked uh, how wonderful it was to have um, a lovely European afternoon tea. And he complimented Rose on her uh, wonderful cooking. And at the same time, she commissioned Harry to make a tramobile, um, which is still in the house. <laughs> yeah. So he, he didn't buy one. He made it. He got it made himself. I was wondering if we might open up to the audience. Mm. Uh, if there are any questions that any of you have for Penelope. Hello, Pelopi. My name's Annie McIntyre. Um, I've watched the television show that was broadcast recently and um, I was struck by your home, Kalara, mm-hmm. and uh, you said I had a bit to do with that. I'd love to hear you speak about, about it and um, your views on design and architecture. Oh, well, um, in terms of the house... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I grew up in Warunga, which is a far-flung suburb... We're not far from the row side of the house. And when we wanted to build our own house, I refused to go that far out because I thought I was geographically disadvantaged <laughs> as a young person. So Kalara, for those that you know Sydney, is a good 15 to 20 minutes closer to the city. And we used to traipse around on weekends looking for the ideal block of land. And I, I put the boundary at Kalara. So we did find this block of land on a very strictly uh, steep sloping site with a lovely waterfall and stream at the bottom and it was surrounded, um, it had a reserve opposite and we decided that was our ideal block of land. And so within, I would say within a week, um, Harry had worked out exactly what to do more or less, more or less, because uh, I wish we'd kept all those drawings because it became modified and I had a lot to do with that. I mean, I, 
I simply could not have designed it myself. I mean, I could have designed it myself, but it wouldn't be what it is. But I think I was able to um, make it more um, livable and appropriate. Um, and it must be because it hasn't changed in 50 years. It'll be 50 years next year. Um, it's very difficult to say exactly what I did, but uh, it was a combination. And Penelope, in subsequent projects like MLC, uh, Shell here in Melbourne, how did you work with Harry in terms of your input to those big commissions? Um, well, again, Harry relied on my judgment. <laughs> he, he really did. He'd sketch something. What do you think? Do you think this is better or that's better? Mm. And, what, and, and uh, he used me as a sort of critic. Um, mm. He trusted my judgment and I hope it was right. But sometimes I'd have a brilliant idea. Sometimes. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> right. and, and Penelope, you've continued to uh, commission art in recent times for refurbishment of some of those Oh, yes, yes. Projects. Well, I, I was up in Riverside in Brisbane um, a couple of weeks ago for their 30th anniversary and we've commissioned a wonderful Sydney ball a mm -hmm. 1970s Sydney ball for that because it's appropriate mm -hmm. for the period. Oh, yes, they still and ask the my MLC advice. the MLC Centre. The MLC Centre in Sydney with um, Eric. Rob Robert Owen. Robert Owens. And um, Robert Owen did the landmark sculpture next mm -hmm. to our office in Sydney mm -hmm. where I built, well, we built a park called Harry's Park next to our office and mm. the beautiful uh, Robert Owen sculpture, mm. Blue. Mm. Thank you. Given that um, back in Europe there was much interplay between both the visual arts and music and there were many musicians and composers who emigrated or had to escape mm -hmm. to Australia as refugees, was there much interplay with them? And is there much scope for your, you mentioned a project that would involve those European immigrants, would there be much scope for that to be including immigrant composers and performers in Australia? Well, um, Harry was, that's uh, one thing that wasn't in the documentary, he was a devotee of um, Baroque music, particularly J.S. Bach. And my father, I was brought up in a very musical family, so concerts were, um, involvement in music was very much part of our life. And through, I, I don't know if it was through him or through my family, we did know a lot of Europeans who were involved in the musical life. Um, I can't remember any particular the, the, composers, the, the wax, but the, we knew uh, Richard Mill and, yeah. yeah. The Wax? The Wax, oh yes, um, Anna Wax, who was um, a pianist, we designed two houses for the Wax family. The Wax House number one was actually the first Seidler house ever finished um, before the Rose Seidler house and then ten years later, or maybe a bit later, when her family grew, we, he commissioned, uh, they commissioned another house. And as Robert Buckingham mentioned, this evening we'll be screening the Farben Lisspiel, which is the colour music 
play by Hirschfeld Mack, who uh, was a Bauhaus immigre who uh, worked for many years in Geelong. And yes, there's a not when Gropius came to Australia in 1952, he said to Harry, um, "Where is Gay Long?" and uh well harry told him you know near melbourne and he said he must come to Geelong to see lord vig hirsch for mac who had also been working uh teaching at the bauhaus and he did but the interesting thing about hirschfield mac well, one of the interesting things Mm. i mean is that he came to australia on the dunera the, the ship Dunera, which was uh, for internees coming from England. And Harry was on a sister ship, the, um, the Ettrick, yeah, uh, from, which was sent to Canada. And uh, two, there were four ships. Um, one came to Australia, two went to Canada, and the fourth one was sunk by U-boats. And at first, Harry's parents, who were living in another part of England, had heard that the, they were, the Marcel and Harry were on the, on the U-boat, but mm. fortunately not. Mm. But so it is extraordinary that Hirschfield Mack was on the sister ship and... Along with so many of the yeah. most significant post-war emigres who really shaped our... Uh, culture of the 20th century. Well, Harry was the youngest. His birthday was just on the sort of wrong day. And, of course, he was... uh, What year was Hirschfield Mac born? 1893. Yes, you see. Well, that's uh, 20 years older. Mm. So most of the um, those refugees were older. Mm. But just in answer also partly to your question is that many of the emigre... Uh, architects had as clients people in the other artistic disciplines. So you'll find Harry had Mm. crossover crossover Mm. clients. Mm. And it's the same with people like Ernest Fuchs here in Melbourne had clients who were in the arts Mm. Mm. and also likewise emigres. Mm. Or used uh, emigre designers Designers. like... Crimper, Chulam Crimper furniture. Yeah, there's going to be an exhibition in Sydney later this year of the um, emigre furniture designers. Where is that? At the Museum of Sydney. Mm. And just to perhaps wrap up, unless there are any other questions. Yes? I, I was interested to know was there much collaboration with photographers because this was a new style for Australia and I would have thought photography was very important in promoting the style. Indeed. Well, Harry was a keen photographer. His brother was a photographer, Marcel, and Marcel um, originally photographed the um, the Roseside La House. The classic photos of that house were all taken by Marcel. But it was soon after that he met Max Dupin, and then he only used Max. <laughs> he was um, dedicated to Max Dupin. Uh, but Harry always took his own photos as well, because Max mostly took black and white, but Harry stood next to him and took the colour, Kodachrome slides. And uh, 
there's a book, I don't know if you've seen it, called uh, The Grand Tour of Harry's Pictures Taken All Over the World of All Historic Architecture. He was a very um, fanatic photographer. But Penelope, you're there with him. Most of it. <laughs> to give scale. To give scale. <laughs> and our project on Bauhaus Australia very much captures that broader history of people like Wolfgang Sievers, uh, Henry Tolbert, who in fact was yes. also a Denira boy. Yes, we knew him. Mm. Uh, you know, a huge history. Well, undoubtedly, Mahali Naj and mm. the project of new objectivity that was central to the Bauhaus. Uh, it was those emigre photographers who brought it into you know, the studios, but also into the mass media in, yeah, in Australia. Newton. Was Newton, was it? Newton, indeed. Mm. Any other questions? Other? Yes, I did actually. Um, um, my question was that after Dadaism, art became very intellectual, uh, intellectualized. Um, and since Harry Sadler believed in your judgment um, and being the critic, I would like to, to know how do you go about judging a good work of art? Uh, difficult to say, just as on aesthetics. Um, just whether I like it or not. <laughs> uh, but also, I can I can rationalise it afterwards. But uh, I think it's visual. It's ninety nine percent visual. But it's mm. shaped by your history of well, looking. Well, it's shaped. I've uh, you know I've had seventy years of looking. <laughs> it's. Um, that, I mean, I like a specific forms of art more than others, but that's a personal choice. Just just on that, Penelope, in your family home, was there an interest in art? Oh, yes, yes, yes. My parents were um, fairly involved in things like that. My mother had a small collection, mostly the Sydney Charm School. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, of course, they were very interested. They were friends of William Dobell and were very involved with that nasty court case that happened and... Yeah, and, they were. And your uncle and aunt, in fact, gave the Leger that came out in the 1939 mm. uh, Herald exhibition. Yes. Uh, the really major touring exhibition. Uh, yes. And it was one of the very few uh, modernist paintings to enter yes. well, an my, Australian collection. My uncle, Dr Herbert Vera Evert, and his wife... Mary Alice Everett were very keen um, artistic patrons mm. and not only did they buy the Leger but they bought a Modigliani which mm. sadly mm. was sold in the 60s because they needed the money when my uncle became ill and it's really sad to think mm. that it was yes. hanging in Sydney in the art gallery for some time and had to go overseas mm. It was sold at Sotheby's for what was a very low sum in those days, I think £10,000 or something. Mm. 
Well, I think uh, unless there's a final question, we might wrap up. Oh, we're going to show the film? We are going to show the film. Oh, not film. the whole film. No, no, no. no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Takes an hour. No. So maybe you might. Yes, look, uh, we're going to show a small uh, section of the film, we hope with uh, sound, called, and it's Harry Seidler, uh, modernist. Mm. Uh, the film was uh, directed by Daryl Delora and took... It was in the making for a many, many number of years. Uh, I think it's rare to see a film on an architect, a feature film on an Australian architect. So it's now available on iview. It was filmed on ABC television, I think, two weeks ago now, but it's still oh, available on iview. Yeah. I think the star of the show is Penelope in, <laughs> in the uh, documentary. Uh, so what we're going to see now, I'm not sure which excerpt has been chosen, but uh, uh, please enjoy the, uh, the excerpt from Harry Seidler, Modernist. And if you haven't seen the full thing, go on iview. And we'll catch you later at 6.15 for a round table and another screening of some Barhaus, Farb and Lisfield uh, following the round table. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.